0: Yeah, I'm going to go back to my good friend and colleague, uh, Guy Bailey, who who said to me one day, Taylor, you're going to be a president. And I'm like, huh, what? And I'm glad I listened to him and I'm glad that he mentored me in that way. So, um, you know, I've had other people who've had a profound impact on me. I, I shared with you this story of my wandering in the wilderness as an undergrad when I was at Tufts University, starting as a chem eng, taking a year off doing mechanical engineering in the year off and then coming back as a biologist. I had this profound moment when I went into the biology department because I love biology and I found a professor at Tufts who's still there, Dr. Jan Pachenik. He brought me into his environment and uh, <clears throat> as an undergraduate researcher in his lab, and I had a chance to do research with him and it it affected everything from there on in my life because I I loved research so much and I loved discovery so much. and.
1: Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. Each week, I team up typically with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president or chancellor to better understand what it's like to lead in this very complex moment and to surface some insights and perspective um, about their leadership. This week, that is certainly the case, and I am delighted. While I am flying solo today, I am really delighted to bring on the president of the University of Texas, San Antonio. Thank you so much for being with us today, President is egg i'm trying i just realized that i didn't actually double check your friends it's,
0: it's amy yeah okay. just call me but just call me taylor please
1: taylor it is a water it is uh excellent that pronunciation is so much easier than i could have done <laughs> for those of you at home who are not familiar president amy is the sixth president of the university of san antonio and came here in 2017 but one of the things i find really interesting is that his perspective as president he brings a unique vantage point having been a chief research officer vice president for research at three universities prior to this. So uh, at Texas Tech, University of New Hampshire and the University of Tennessee Knoxville. So that's a really interesting, I think, perspective on the presidency. And then also seeing the stuff that you've been doing at UT San Antonio, I just wanted to have a conversation with you. And so thanks for being with us today.
0: Yeah, it's a delight to be with you, Bridget. And I appreciate all the, the work that you do in your efforts to advance student success. And that's something we care about greatly. I have to admit, uh, my progression as a a researcher to a president is something I never envisioned back when I was younger. And uh, there are a few of us uh, in higher ed, especially in public higher ed, who have sort of taken this path to presidencies having been chief research officers. Kirk Schultz at Washington State is a good example. Uh, there are others, Florida State, uh, Northern Illinois. There's a cadre of us. We, we constitute some kind of mafia, I think, in terms of <laughs> our, our focus. But it's a, I think it's a, a useful um, perspective to have when you become a president. The, the opportunity as a chief research officer to always advocate and make a case for for what you care about, whether you're writing proposals or advocating for partnerships or pulling teams together, you're constantly talking about what you're doing and why it's important. And uh, that's a lot of what you do as a president. So it it feels very comfortable for me as president now to build on my strengths, uh, my prior strengths as a chief research officer and put those to good use as we embark on our engagement with a legislature here in texas or with donors or with our city and county partners i'm always in the business of talking about my institution by the way i have the best job in the world utsa is a remarkable place so it's a, an easy thing to talk about and advocate for
1: i am super interested in that uh, and teasing out a little bit more on that Perspective, because when we were talking earlier, uh, just to you know see, see leading up to the show, I really appreciated your perspective that in order to be the chief research officer, uh, that you had to be more collaborative than perhaps other parts of the institution, and so I think that's an interesting angle to take in terms of thinking about the kinds of characteristics that traditional roles bring, like provost and otherwise, but can you say a little bit more about why, why do you think it's more collaborative in its nature and how does that show up as president when you are, you know, frankly, trying to figure out how to make decisions internally? How does that uh, actually assist?
0: Yeah, so I, I think um, most chief research officers who become presidents would say exactly what I'm about to say, and it has to do with this, that um, it is a less obvious trajectory or pathway to a presidency, but you think about it, most chief research officers have come up through the ranks of obviously being a researcher themselves, collaborating with others inside their own institution um, and outside their institution with other institutions. They've uh, frequently uh, worked on big initiatives that that involve pulling people together and and going after big things, typically with our our philanthropic community or federal agencies uh, or or the private sector. So we've always been in the business of pulling people together to collaborate, to do big things. You know, I think uh, as you become a a chief research officer at, at an institution, you are empowered to do that in a very big way on behalf of the entire institution where your prior kind of areas of effort might've involved your own personal uh, growth as a researcher or your your work as a, a director of an institute or, or some kind of major research program. But when you wear a CRO hat, you're doing it on behalf of the whole institution. And uh, so you're in the, the business of, of working with deans, department chairs, faculty members, uh, chief uh, research office staff, uh, collaborators that are at other institutions, collaborators that are typically vice presidents for research at companies that you're collaborating with or with not-for-profits that you're working with so it's it's just naturally a collaborative environment and all of that lends itself to learning, how to collaborate and how to how to bring people together to support good ideas and big causes and develop how to develop consensus around what you're what you're working on. So uh, I, I, w- I would actually say it, it has served me immensely well in my trajectory as an administrator and leading towards my presidency and i I was I'm grateful for all that background that I had in that space because I was an individual researcher I was a director of, of a research group and, and a director of, of a cooperative institute and and then as as, a, as I kind of ascended into the uh, higher higher levels of, of research administration I got to work on these kinds of collaborations all the time and so it it, again it prepares you for for what you want to try and do as a president because frequently the things that you work on involve uh, communication collaboration consensus um, rethinking great ideas refining great ideas and turning those great ideas into action so I, i think it's a logical logical pathway It makes so
1: much sense to me now as you're describing it, but it would make a more collaborative role because you can't actually just tell people what to do with research. You don't have the luxury of being in a position where you just kind of like, it's my way, the highway. Uh, Not that that's the kind of leadership we're looking for, but there are positions where you have the luxury of being able to set a vision and then tell people what to do. And like, it's, you know, do it or don't, right? But (laughs) as someone who's done collaborative research as someone who runs a, a collaborative that is run through the research office at an institution... Yeah, it is constant compromise and it is uh, it is consensus building. So that's an interesting uh, perspective, you know, for those of you in the audience who are either part of a search search firm or your institution searching, you know, we always put the word salad of what kind of candidates and characteristics we're looking for, but that's something you should consider. It's perhaps advancing that someone who isn't just a researcher, but someone who's actually had to oversee and supervise collaborative research would actually bring you the kind of collaborative leader you're looking for.
0: You know, uh, to elaborate just a little bit more, it's worth doing this. Typically, as a chief research officer, at at least at most R1 institutions, you're, you're kind of You have a a, a very important role to pull together big ideas that come from your faculty and come from your collaborations internal to the institution and across institutions and some of the biggest things i worked on as a as a chief research officer involved going after really big things from the department of energy or national science foundation or nih around uh, multi-institutional collaborations and and uh, you typically have to be conveying uh, the the, the, the distilled essence of of what you're working on. So it's so compelling that one of these federal partners is gonna support it. So you have the whole peer review process you have to prepare for, or the site visit process that you have to prepare for. And you're always having to distill and make very clear the, the inherent benefit and purpose of what you're doing. So it aligns with the mission of who you're trying to encourage to to fund your your big idea and so you're in the process of really telling a compelling story and leading with your heart about why you believe it's important and and frankly, a lot of what presidents get to do now, whether it's fundraising or work, at least for public institutions, working with state legislatures, it's you have to be making these compelling cases all the time. So, so you, I think chief research officers have really honed their skills in this space and that, that, that prepares them for the, the wonders and joys of, of, of seeking public support um, or, or seeking philanthropic support. Those are, those are really some of the fun things you get to do as a president. So, I, 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 again, I, th- I think it's a, a good pathway.
1: Well, so let's talk a little bit more about your leadership beyond just the perspective of your prior roles and how it influenced, you know, how you lead. For most folks, there's someone they can think of who they learned how to be a leader from. Or they, you know, kind of characteristics to emulate, or they can remember very viscerally uh, someone they never want to be like. As you think about your leadership journey, you know, throughout your career, yeah. where did you learn the most? And was it either from a good example or a bad example?
0: I don't know if my career path is all that different from other presidents. Um, I, I worked at a, a number of institutions the University of New Hampshire, then Texas Tech University, then the University of Tennessee at Knoxville now here at at UTSA, this marvelous institution. And I had I think when we chatted last, I I shared that I had worked for maybe ten or eleven or twelve. I I can't keep track of it all, but uh, uh, CEOs across those institutions, uh, some permanently appointed, I mean, uh, appointed others were interim in nature. But I I saw um, when those times happened, when crystallization of focus and purpose occurred and the cabinet at the institution was so aligned about where the institution was going. And I saw the role that a president or a chancellor had in in pulling together teams that could work together to do the merry work, the very altruistic work of typically of what administrators do is you push rocks uphill. And uh, I saw the conditions under which that worked really well. And um, the leaders that, that uh, affected me, influenced me in a very positive way were the ones that worked really hard to assemble teams that were perfectly aligned and and very, very collaborative in, in nature. Cause you know, certainly this work is challenging and hard and relentless in terms of the intensity of it uh, at times, and so you need a team that's cohesive and focused and collaborative and supportive of each other. And I saw elements where that came together, and uh, so I vowed um, that that I would wor- work really hard and do my very best to assemble the same sort of team to work with me uh, as as we uh, prepared to 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 work here at UTSA, and so. Um, you know I, I, I've been fortunate across the span of my career to have people that have taken me under their wing and uh, uh, the, the one that, that really comes to mind for me is is the one uh, president that I work for that actually sort of activated me about my thinking about my potentially being a president someday and that was Guy Bailey who's presently the president president at, at UT Rio Grande Valley. So he's had a sister institution to to mine within the University of Texas system. But he hired me to be his chief research officer at Texas Tech when he was the president there. And, and you know, I had not given any thought to being a president. I, I was basically clueless about thinking about those kinds of things, even as a chief research officer. And And when I landed at Texas Tech, he was a very powerful mentor to me and and supported me. You've always gave me degrees of freedom and broad swim lanes to, to, to work on stuff and empowered me to, to be very bold in my leadership and to go after big things, to, you know, to 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 dream big, go big. He was always the person saying to me, Taylor, uh, you're going to be a president someday, and I want to help you, and I'm happy to mentor you. And uh, and he did. And uh, who would have thought that I would end up where I've ended up? But but he was a very powerful influence for me, and so I'm really really grateful to Guy for his his belief in me, his mentoring in me, and uh, we've become obviously we're 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 we're. Uh, we're both presidents within the University of Texas system, but he is a, a dear, dear friend, in addition to being a colleague. So I, you know, I'm really grateful for that. And the kinds of things that he, he espoused and believed in as a mentor to me are the kinds of things that I really believe in now myself. So, um, you know, those are those are powerful connections.
1: I find it interesting that there, so Freeman Rabowski does that where he frequently will tap people and he'll be like, I don't know if you see this, but I see this in you. Um, and I find that it is, it's is—it's a small collection of presidents who do that. It, so it's either you, you are on the hunt and helping tap and identify people and you are always looking for that talent and helping them see that in themselves or radio silence. I don't find that it's actually like everyone does that with two or three people. It's that there are certain people who feel like it is part of their leadership journey to help other leaders, to yeah. help identify future leaders. And then there are others who are, you know, their leadership is their leadership and they're kind of focused on their own lane. And I bet there are other people who he has. Um, well, there are,
0: yeah, I think uh, Dr. Bailey, um, uh, the last count I, I, I did was, I think he's mentored at least 10 people who have become presidents, which is, I think that's probably unparalleled within higher ed or public higher ed. So, uh, you yeah, know, it's pretty powerful evidence. When I am, um, you know, I've had that the chance of and the opportunity to hire wonderful people to work with in all of my positions as uh, starting as a faculty member all the way up to being a president and hiring people is really, really uh, an important part of one's job and to do it well and to do it right is, is, is requires energy and, and purpose and, and maybe a little bit of luck. Uh, uh, And I would I would I would say this. um, I've always had this philosophy and I don't know if I had to go back and do it over. I'm not sure I would change, but I've learned over time that my refinement of this is important. But I've always believed that to serve in higher education as a leader, you have to fundamentally be an altruist, selfless. You have to enjoy hard work. You have to be an optimist. You have to have a sense of humor and you have to really, really enjoy pushing rocks up a hill. I, I've made it I made mention of that already earlier in our conversation, but I believe it's true. And to all the folks that I've hired, I think this has been common to every conversation I've had over the last 20 years when I've hired folks, but especially in more senior roles as the chief research officer and now president, I, I say this. I. Much rather some, hire someone who has these attributes and believes in the inherent nobility of the mission of the institution. But I, I don't necessarily want them to come here and be here forever. I want them to come here and grow and, and, and get ready to prepare for what's next in their life. And I, I want them to, to get ready to fly. And I'd rather have someone like that for three or five years to come and make a difference and then. They fly off and do something bigger and and bolder and, and that's a good thing for for them for the institution for me for everybody and it's just one of my philosophies and so i i do really want the folks that i work with to be mentored individually but also from a team perspective and i want them to to shine and do so well that they're not here forever they go off and do something even bigger and better so that's a really important thing for me to to believe deeply in. Yeah,
1: no, I don't, I don't disagree. I think that you do, there are some people who perhaps hide their optimism more than others, but I do think it is about exposing, it's about identifying potential that you have to see the potential of everything because otherwise you're making really hard decisions constantly. And it's a real bummer of a job mm-hmm. if you only see the glass half full, but it is also about helping people achieve their potential. I mean, it really it is something about, I think you're right, inherently it is. it does require optimism.
0: Yeah, um, oh, for sure, yeah, especially. Yeah. Well, I've, especially over the last two and a half years with a pandemic and here in Texas, at least a economic downturn in 20, 2020. So uh, it, it goes much better if you're inherently an optimist. And Yeah. Yeah. There's no for
1: folks who are who are negative about this. The moment, I'm just like, higher ed's literally we're going to rise. We need to rise to the moment. Yeah, uh, the sure. solution to many of the problems that we're worried with and that we're concerned about, whether it's the, the future of our democracy or the economic competitiveness of our country, higher ed is literally at the center of those. And so it's not about doing exactly what we've done before, but it's about actually living up to the promise. And that's yeah. going to require some small changes. But, I mean, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Right. This is the place where it's the nexus of yeah. the future.
0: I, uh, I had a chance uh, through my work with APLU to get an update about the boyer 2030 commission and it which is is exciting in its own right that it's going back to the 1998 original boyer commission report on undergraduate education and i i don't this makes me old-fashioned i think some of the if not all of the recommendations that came out of boyer in 1998 are actually still relevant today, or perhaps even more so today than in 1998. And I do know that the Boyer 2030 Commission is, is going back and looking at so many of the things that were important then and, and adding to that. But some of the things that, that, that we have to do now to make the understanding of the value of a higher ed degree, that whole effort to explain that, to have people understand it, to have people believe it is such an important aspect of where higher ed has to go. And and some of the tenets, I actually believe all 10 of the recommendations that came out of Boyer in 1998 are essential today, even more so. So, you know, the, this whole thing about how we think about uh, the value proposition, the, what's going on now with Carnegie and Ace working on measuring universities around economic mobility and the impact that an undergraduate education has had on preparing a student to go out and change the world all those things are still really really important Uh, if you believe deeply in higher education like i do that it's the most transformative thing in the world that it will it will impact someone's trajectory individual life trajectory in such a profound way if you believe that it's it's okay to be an optimist about everything
1: I agree. I think that too much we're seeing things from uh, right here, and so of course it's very yep. scary and hard. But the yep. more you can zoom out and look at look at history, you'll see that there's plenty to be excited about. And I think that the, the um, there are some things that are really I'm seeing some some actual movement that are very is very cool in terms of communicating with the public, whether it's the gates what they've done on the Value Commission. But I also love something um, that for folks at home, you might pop over to YouTube and take a look at Study Hall, which is something ASU is doing in partnership with, and this is, uh, you know, if you are on TikTok, or uh, uh, especially for younger folks, they will know this name, but Hank Green, who's a prolific social media influencer on science, they are creating a bunch of videos uh, that basically handle all the questions that we know that the public has, whether it's how to pay for college, how to, how to college, right? Just take a, if you get a chance, take a look at those videos and look at the comment section. It is mind blowing. Like people are just like, wow, this is all I've ever needed was this four minute video, right? The simplicity of language that we're showing that you can do is, so there's some evidence there. But the other um, is, I just keep seeing that it's institutions only thinking, being obsessed with the boundaries of their own institutions, right? Like that's our problem. The more we can actually think and have leadership as a sector we will actually start listening to what the public says, and we will respond in a way that they can understand what we're, what we're talking about and the
0: value of higher ed. Problematic. We had, um, we had Ted Mitchell in to visit. Uh, uh, there's an association of public university presidents and chancellors here in Texas. Uh, the acronym is Sapupsi. It's a good group of folks. And we had Ted Mitchell come in and talk about where ACE and Carnegie are collaborating about, you know, really developing another classification for universities around economic mobility and all the foundational work they're doing to prepare for putting forward a model about that. And I think it's really, really important that they do that. But Ted was sharing um, some information about their focus groups. They've been doing a ton of focus groups. And what's interesting uh, to me, if you look at all the stressors out there about the perceptions of of higher ed especially public higher ed Uh, you can read about them every week in the new york times or the chronicle or inside higher ed and there are a lot of stressors out there but what the focus groups that ace has been doing they're really coming out and saying look the cost of attendance is really tough get us uh in a situation where our 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 family members our, our our sons and daughters can graduate on time with a degree that's meaningful, with a job opportunity that's out there that they're gonna be able to go to. Those are the things that we care about the most. It's show us that you pay attention to the, you know, the average time of it, of, of attendance. Is it is it less than five years? Is it less than four and a half years? Uh, and, and then sh- show us that uh, me as a student or my son and daughter or family members going to graduate into a, a program and an opportunity and an expansive view of the world that involves a, a, a job that, that that I know will pay pay well. And the fact that that's still an issue, it's always been an issue for public higher ed, but it still comes back to that as an issue. That's Those are solvable things. Those are things that we can address as presidents and as institutions, as public university systems. So you know the fact that it boils down to those two issues is is not an intractable problem. It's a solvable problem. So I'm, I'm that's why I remain optimistic about where public higher ed can go, despite the distractions that are out there too.
1: Yeah, I, I think the thing we have to just address is the cacophony of voices of come to this institution. We are the most blubity boop of boobity boop. We are the best of this or what like that. That That is just overwhelming to the public in terms of understanding what a good institution is. Should I actually go there? How do I trust this? The fact that marketing and PR is is happening times four to 7,000 institutions, it creates this just massive noise that, that disconnects us from the public. So at some point, us as a sector, not just yeah. about how you should come to my institution, but just as a sector, here's how we should talk about college that is actually listening to what the public is asking.
0: Actually, you know, Third Way just revised their, um, sort of their evaluations of economic mobility. They came out with their report in January or February and then updated it and put it into, instead of individual rankings, into tiered groups. And uh, the fact that that so many think tanks now in, in Carnegie and the University of Texas system and other systems here in Texas and state legislatures are looking at this whole issue of what is the value of the education that's been provided? How have you prepared this young person to go out into the world? The fact that that question is coming to the fore now will resolve the cacophony of noise that's out there because so much of what i think families care about these days are the issues i just described and, and economic mobility is such a profound part of part of that so you know that's you know, had other people, you know public institutions i think I mean, have to pay attention to this a little bit more story of, of more my private institutions it's in the for all higher ed to pay attention to this if you think, think about how Doing mechanical the, the, the engineering in the place, year off this, and then coming the back as a biologist, fact, I had this, this profound moment Change. when I went into the biology right, so, uh, department because uh, right I love and biology lab and I found a professor at Tufts who's still there, Dr. Jan Pachenik. He brought me into his environment and as an undergraduate researcher in his lab, and I, lab lab and lab I had a chance to do research with him, and, and it. It affected everything from there on in my life because I, I loved research so much and I loved discovery so much. And who would have thought that that activation of me as a, a young learner who became so passionate about something that it would have come from a mentor-mentee relationship as an undergrad. So that was also a very powerful th- thing for me. And I celebrate that all the time. I, I stay in touch with Jan and I'm, I'm glad that he did what he did. I wouldn't be here today without him.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that when mentorship. Really, uh, we underscore, we, we talk about it as though something we want to scale in our, our, our yeah. but seeing the actual product is wonderful. Is
0: there a book that you recommend most frequently to
1: people who are interested in leadership?
0: Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm learning as I go and I'm really focusing on how my leadership team here at UTSA can uh, develop as a team and as we go through the, the new normal coming out of the pandemic. And I am intrigued about this uh, Daniel Goleman work that was published in the Harvard Business Review back in 2004 about what makes a leader. But I also have to say, I can't give up my background as a chief, former chief research officer. So. Jonathan Cole's book on this concept of towards a more perfect university is another thing I like to recommend uh, in in addition to his earlier work on great American universities and obviously Michael Crow's work on on where universities are going. All those were good reading materials uh, for, for me and my leadership team. Great.
1: Well, this has been super helpful uh, for those at home. I appreciate you uh, joining us today. I feel like this has been a great conversation and helps people understand kind of how you uh, look at the work at the presidency and it helps everyone else to understand that there is this. I, I just think that the headline is around the idea of. VPs for research being a a pipeline of talent that we should intentionally cultivate and seek to bring into searches. The more that we're looking for the kind of characteristics that you talked to us about, so um, I think that's that's great. Hopefully, search firms are just updating their their lists.
0: (laughs) And I would also add that um, this notion that you know we just formed this alliance of Hispanic-serving research universities and. UTSA is a proud member of that alliance. And the, the focus that you can have as a discovery enterprise, but as an institution that excels in student success and economic mobility, that's a that's a powerful combination right there. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to be sitting in the seat that I sit in and have the colleagues that I have and the mission that we have here in South Texas and in San Antonio. It's a great place uh, and, and our, our purpose is really bold and really noble and uh, it makes every day a joy.
1: Wonderful, and we're getting all the comments are rolling in. People are loving this conversation. So thank you again. And it's been just really wonderful to get to know you. So I hope you have a wonderful week. For those of you ahead, we are out there in the audience. We hope that this has been inspiring and giving you a little bit to chew on as you think about your own leadership in the weekend.
0: Bridget, thank you very much. You take care, I appreciate what you do.